Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Tom Giffard was elected in 2021 as the Welsh Conservative member of the Senate for South Wales West. Upon his election, he became the Shadow Minister for Culture, Tourism and Sport. Since then, he has used his scrutiny skills to hold the Welsh Government to account on issues such as their proposed visitor levy and the Welsh Rugby Union on, well, let's face it, a lot of what's going wrong with the WRU. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, uh, how are you doing? You're right. Very well. Um, Tom, let's start with the WRU. Obviously, the nation was a poor boy at the hood in the recent BBC documentary. What is your assessment of what's been happening there? Well, um, it's been going for a couple of weeks now since we saw the documentary, and I've watched the documentary back um, a couple of times, really, since it since it aired, and it's thoroughly depressing, to be honest, to know that a major organisation in Wales runs sort of in that way and those those sort of attitudes exist in the way that they do obviously as you know we've had wru into the senate we've also had the deputy minister for sport don bowden uh, to our committee and sport wales as well more recently and the one thing that struck me i guess was the number of people that sort of said well you know i knew this sort of thing was going on but actually it wasn't really my place to do anything about it or i didn't know anything formally so that's probably the bit I find the most depressing about it all, really, is the fact that, you know, this was known. It would have been a shock to a lot of people, but it perhaps wouldn't have been a surprise that these attitudes pervaded in, in, in the Welsh Rugby Union, but quite why nobody thought to act or challenge them up until the airing of the documentary is really surprising. You talk about that Senate session, obviously, you, uh, you, you spoke to Ian Evans and Nigel Walker. I think a lot of coverage was on the fact that bits of Ian Evans's autobiography were spoken back at him during that session about the concerns he had about the culture in the WRU when he was still playing. So it does seem odd that there's not been any sort of efforts to change it in that time, and even when Ian Evans himself was on the board. Yeah, and um, uh, on this autobiography, I'm going to give credit to a member of the public who got in touch with us as a committee to um, to flag that, and I got my hands on a copy of Ian Evans' autobiography, and it's actually quite startling. So I read uh, some quotes from him in terms of the way he thought the clubs uh, sort of rule too much of the way the Welsh Rugby Union runs, and were kind of a block on on change. And obviously, you know, look, you don't want to make yourself hostage to fortune when you when you write these things. And probably he know he would never have thought that when he wrote uh, that autobiography that he'd be you know sitting in a senate committee having to defend it nearly thirty years later. But nevertheless, the fact that he he had said those things when he was a player recognised that they were issues and obviously then had to go and canvass those same clubs to go and get support for, you know, to, 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 be, to be put in the position that he was, was really quite significant. So, you know, there's, there's an assessment for, that there was a need for change. And I think Ian probably recognises there is a need for change, but, you know, maybe it's one of those ones that up until it takes something like what we saw with the WRU to take it out of the too difficult pile almost. So I'm pleased to see, you know, the, 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 the changes that they've made. I'm pleased to see the independent task force. It shows they're taking it seriously. And I did think when they came to our committee that they were committed to taking it seriously. They were clearly embarrassed and quite appalled by what had happened and that they were hoping to deliver change. But obviously it goes back to the way the Welsh Rugby Union is structured. The power is with the clubs and they've got to now sell this to the ordinary grassroots clubs across Wales. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next couple of weeks and months. I think that was James Stafford who gave you that information, who was actually on the uh, one of our panellists the last time we did a big pod on rugby. So with small world, Wales's village. It was very interesting. It seems to me that very soon after these sessions, much media furor then went to the decision uh, to announce that Delilah would not be sung by choirs at the stadium. 
even though this had sort of happened quite a long time before that announcement. What what do you think was the WRU's motivation to, to, to make this announcement? Do you think it was some sort of cynical attempt to move the, the conversation away from the problems? Or do you think it was some type of olive branch? What do you think? In my view, it's a bit of a distraction, right? Is that I think the WRU, you, you, you look back at the timeline, right? From the top of my head, the WRU, would, that documentary had come out on the Monday and it wasn't until the Sunday until Steve Phillips had resigned. And let's be blunt, not a lot had happened with the WRU in that in that time. Um, the second week, if you like, things did start to pick up with the appointment of Nigel Walker in his place and so on. But sometimes I think organisations can want to look as though they're doing a lot and sort of overcompensate in other areas in order to sort of create that impression. And I think that's where the Delilah thing come from. As you say, you know, it had been banned from the from the playlist as best I understand it in 2015, um, but it stopped choirs playing it. Oh, it might be the other way around. I can't remember, um, which was the announcement that was made. But it's clearly well-intentioned, right? The heart is in the right place kind of thing. And, and you know, I don't have a problem with the WRU necessarily saying that. It's just the timing of it. I'm surprised that given everything that was going on in WRU in that week, given all of the external and internal pressures are in WRU, that somebody was worrying about lyrics from a song from, you know, 50-odd years ago. Um, seems a very odd decision. And ultimately, you're never going to be able to stop fans singing it in the stands and so on and and as has been proved in the games that followed that 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 did continue to happen so you know it whether you ended up drawing more attention to it in the long run i don't know but it does seem to be the case at least in the short term that that's exactly what happened the one of the biggest long-standing concerns about the the game in wales has been the finances however obviously we've seen information this week that says that maybe the ospreys might be merging with with an English club in Ealing um, and playing in the URC. Why is this £100 million a year business struggling so much to finance the game in Wales, Tom? It's interesting. I, I, I guess I wish I knew the answer to that. But when we had the WIU in for a session, and in particular when we had the Welsh Government in, we talked about the money that WIU receives from the Welsh Government via Sport Wales. And it's about, I think it's 18, eight, sorry, 800000 in the last financial year. And what WIU kept saying and Welsh Government kept saying was, well, you know, it only makes up a small proportion of what the WIU earns. So if we put some strings on this and if we told the WIU that, you know, in order to receive this money, they needed a change and so on, um, it wouldn't have made much of a difference. But actually, on the other hand, now we're dealing with a problem where the WIU does seem to be in a financial uh, in financial straits. Being honest about it, if you look back to where rugby was 20 years ago before the regions and where it is today, I can't tell you with any confidence, really. It's made the game particularly particularly stronger. And what's equally as concerning is I think the, the pathways for elite talent to get through to that men's rugby team uh, to, for the national team sort of is, is narrower perhaps than it would have been uh, 20 years ago. So, you know, it's obviously depressing to see the players threatened to go on strike before that game against England. You know, that was uh, that was real. It's it's a game, but though it's it's a game, is, is it the Welsh Rugby Union? Just because they'll have known that these issues were pervading, they'll have known these issues would have been in the squad, but is it again a case of the Welsh Rugby Union only acting when things are getting very public uh, and are very apparent and very out there? And it, just like the, uh, the BBC documentary, this seems to be the same all over again. You know, I haven't got the magic bullet as to how you finance this. And I don't think, I think one of the things this whole past couple of weeks has thrown up is that there should be a distance between politics and politicians and the way sport is run. So I don't think it would be appropriate for me or, 
or indeed the Welsh government to come up with with the ideas for these things. But you know, it is incredibly concerning, and I think it does warrant sort of more investigation, if you like, uh, in terms of what WIU is playing at here. I mean, rugby is just one of these things that seems so sort of fundamental, especially to South Wales, to our sort of cultural link to our sure. country. Uh, obviously, what part of your brief is tourism. People come from all over the world uh, to to experience rugby in Wales, to experience the Welsh tourism sector. But you've been very vocal in your opposition to the Welsh government's visitor levy, as you would probably call it, a, a tourism tax. Would you be able to explain your opposition to that, Tom? That was a beautiful segue from rugby into uh, into tourism, by the way. Um, so the fundamental point with the tourism tax, I think, is this, right, is that we've just come out of a pandemic, right? Tourism was shut down in this country for the best part of two, nearly three years uh, with various restrictions, you know, either full lockdown or restricting where people could travel and so on. And it made, despite all the support that was available from UK government and Welsh government, it made those businesses very sort of live hand to mouth for a period of time we know it's a huge part of our economy in wales one in seven jobs about two hundred thousand people rely on the tourism sector thriving um in wales and so you know again we don't know what form this tax will take right but what we do know is you know i accept right i represent um south wales west which includes tourist areas like Porthcawl and like mumbles i fully accept that if you go to those places sometimes on a sunny Saturday afternoon, it, the place is absolutely packed. Uh, and it does cause a real problem for local people. I've never, never doubt that. Um, and I fully accept that that is an issue. But what we think this tax will do from what the Welsh Government have said so far it'll, is it will be a tax on overnight stays rather than on people that visit a tourism location um, just for a day. And I think if you look at the spend, if you look at the contribution that people that spend a day in a tourism area make to a local economy versus people who stay overnight, I think it's people who stay overnight spend 14 times more in that local economy than people who come for a day. And so if you're discouraging people from staying overnight, they're the very people that you actually want to come. It doesn't do anything to stop the day travelers. It doesn't do anything to stop people coming in their carts down to Mumbles for an afternoon. But what it does do is stop the people that will keep that pub viable or keep that local business going in a local area. So, you know, we worked out that based on international examples, it probably add uh, an extra 70 pounds a week onto a stay for a family of four, you know, given the fragility of the industry, given that, you know, a lot of travelers are cost conscious, that that might make the difference between whether they come to Porth Call or whether they spend a weekend in Western Supermare. And those are our competitors ultimately. And they're the people that, you know, we, we need to be competing against and saying, actually, you know, you're better off spending a week or a weekend in Porth Call. I mean, that that's the thing that's always leveled the, this criticism, isn't it, Tom, that this is a tax or a levy that's used basically all across the world. But obviously not to take anything away from Porth Call or Mumbles, but if you're going to Sardinia or Sicily, um, you're already spending probably a bit more money. So that kind of price difference doesn't matter as much. Whereas if you're price conscious and you're choosing between South Wales and Cornwall, for example, then maybe that small financial hit will make a massive difference as to where you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, completely. And we, we know that actually travellers that tend to stay within the UK, if you just think of the UK domestic market, you know, the travellers that tend to stay in the UK where it might be their only holiday, will make that decision based on cost choices. So if you're adding £70 to an overall bill for a, for a family of four to go and stay in a, in a caravan park um, in Porthcawl, as I say, one in one in Devon somewhere, the difference is, is quite 
is quite stark. And actually, I don't know why we would want to, you know, push ourselves out of a market to compete. Now, the kind of accusation from the other hand, if you like, this leveled at, which I, again, accept is a fair critique is well you know shouldn't people who come to visit an area make a contribution to local economy but this well there's two points i'd make in response to that first of all is what we just said right is that the people who are actually having the biggest impact are the people that stay just for a day and go this tourism tax doesn't do anything to to um to to, to help towards that secondly you got to look at this in a kind of wider wider picture so what we've what we've seen so far from the welsh government is a kind of aspiration that'll go towards helping a tourism offer in an area but in reality um when i've asked the press ministers about it what we do know about it and again it's still not a final phase yet so we don't completely know how this will come out but what we do know is that this will be a tax that will be collected by local councils and it doesn't seem like there'll be any way for councils to kind of ring fence that funding to go on and support a local tourism offer so, you know, you know how council budgets work. Well, I, I, you know, I do from five years I spent before being a Senate member in councils is that an, a pot of money, which is probably quite small on the scale of the amount of money that goes for a council, if it's not specifically ring fence, can kind of get lost in kind of day to day spend. So you probably would end up in a position where you're taxing people that come, you know, reducing the pool of people that do come to your area um, in turn, but also then you don't necessarily see the benefit of that spend being spent on improving a tourism offer, adding infrastructure and so on to that area either. I think Adam Price said he hoped that it would be spent on expanding free school meals, for example. So, you know, again, it just needs a little bit of foresight from our government to say, okay, well, if we are going to press ahead with this, we really need to make sure it stays within a tourism economy and to improve a tourism offer. How would you go then about improving that tourism offer, Tom? How would you go about financing it so that the tourism feels sustainable, but also we are attracting more people to Wales? Well, there's a there's quite well, that's the million dollar question, right? And that's the, ultimately what what you know one of the things that I do as the Shadow Minister for Tourism really is to kind of push the Welsh government to take tourism probably a little bit more seriously than it does. Now, the the place I'd start is Visit Wales. So Visit Wales sits entirely within the Welsh government. Visit Britain, for example, or Visit England as well, our organisations are independently led and kind of sit outside of uh, formal government. And what that means is, is that, um, there's one thing one tourism operator told me, is that he felt as though he hadn't heard from uh, Visit Wales since it had been taken into Welsh government. And he felt that it was more about servicing government and servicing ministers than it was about promoting tourism industry. And what we see with those ones that sit outside of government is that they are better at, um, you know, bringing together the best minds, if you like, bringing together independent voices that kind of push push for things. So, for example, you know, going back to the tourism levy, Visit Britain has come out and said that they don't support a tourism levy. You never hear Visit Wales say that because obviously they they exist within within Welsh government, so they'd obviously, you know, wouldn't be able to make that make that point. But it's about for me, figuring out what Wales is and how we market ourselves. And actually, some things have been really, really welcome, I think, in terms of the marketing the Visit Wales has done. But, you know, you think of your uh, international traveller, let's say from America, they'd be fascinated by the number of castles that we have in this in this place and the um, and the kind of mythology of dragons and all the rest of it, as, as an example. And, you know, do we make enough play on those things internationally? I'm not necessarily sure that we do. So, we you know, you know, if you think about it as like a deck of cards in someone's hand, the Welsh government's got a great hand here in terms of actually what Wales has got in terms of its just natural resources, in terms of a tourism offer. 
um, it really needs to make the most of them. And ultimately, that's what we'd want to see is a, is a is an independent visit Wales is really pushing uh, the Welsh government to make the most of the of the tools that it has at its disposal. While we're on tourism, still, I think one of the one of the more important decisions in the tourism space that the Welsh government have made, but one that doesn't get as much attention, is the changes to the occupancy thresholds on self catering properties, which people from the tourism industry say could actually be even more damaging than the tourism tax. Yeah. So, so to give it its proper context, what happens here is if you're staying in a rural area quite often you'll you'll you won't rent out a big chain hotel a big premier inn in a in a in mid wales for example what you'll end up probably doing if you come to stay is rent out a um, a self-catering holiday let property and at the moment people who rent those out pay pay business rates if you like if they if they let it out um for more than 70 days per year so if you think about the seasonality of the way people uh, let things out obviously you know that's very popular in the summer less popular in the winter and so you know kind of kind of levels out what the industry said is you know there's a, there's an inherent degree of unfairness there i think would be the critique right that it only requires 10 weeks a year for that to be let out in order for someone to pay business rates and not council tax as though it's a home so the sector said well look we're very open to looking at this and reviewing this and changing the way that this this works um, and they pushed for 105 days. Well, what the Welsh government has come up with is 182 qualifying days a year for it to be let out. So essentially six months out of the 12 in a year that a holiday let property would need to be let out um, to qualify uh, to pay business rates. If it didn't do that, it would pay council tax. And obviously going on to a wider issue, they might end up paying council tax as though it's a second home, which could be three times the level of council tax. So the bill that would cost would be obscene compared to what it is what it is currently um and so that would have a real impact in terms of you know the viability of a lot of these a lot of these places and actually you know being realistic the vast majority of of these air of these um self-catering holiday lets are not letting out anywhere near uh, six months in the year and so you know the idea that they're not going to be they're going to be able to meet the 182 to avoid having to pay that triple council tax figure is um is, is quite bad Welsh government did a consultation on it and um only one percent of the respondents thought it was a good idea but they're backing you know they, they, they're sort of pushing ahead with this thing and and what it means is going back to that earlier point right is that if 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 you've got a a holiday let or if you've got a tourism business in in rural powys or rural Gwynedd you know, the holiday let is the only thing you've got. If they withdraw from that market, where do you stay if you want a weekend away in, in a rural area in Wales? Um, if they're being taxed in this way, if they're being taxed as though it's a second home, um, I think 73% of holiday let owners say they might end up quitting over the changes. So it really gives you an indication of the scale of the problem here. Um, and it's something I hope the Welsh government will look to address in the, in, you know, in the future before it's too late. What do you make of the accusations, though, that Tom, that these homes, these currently self-catering uh, properties could be family homes otherwise if they weren't you know being used for this purpose well look um the, the, so it, it's different right you've got a different picture in terms of the way holiday lets are being used in different areas so if i take an example of farmers right they were told uh, a number of years ago by the Welsh government they needed to, di to diversify their businesses to look at other ways of raising money well one of the things that I know a couple of farms have done for example is set up holiday let self-catering properties on their on their farmland and they've been very popular and they've revitalized not only that farm but actually the community that farm is based in 
for that for them then to turn around and say well actually no you now need to sell these off as as family homes well they, they're not necessarily designed for that quite often in the planning they're not that's not allowed to happen you know they're built to be holiday lets and so you know it becomes really difficult then for those sorts of those sorts of houses to do that i'm really sorry about that i got an automatic um cat feeder so there's cats amazing that's time to eat it was right then <laughs> i find this this subject really interesting because so many of these policies that people have been pushing the welsh government to do for years and they've they've you know they've not seemed too keen but obviously now with the cooperation agreement with Tide Cymru, they've they're pushing forward with these plans. Do you think that Welsh Labour would have backed these plans originally, or do you think they're just doing it to win over Tide Cymru support? Well, it's clear that there are problems with with second homes, right? And I think Plaid Cymru, particularly, you know, people like Melbourne at Gwynford and Gwynedd, for example, have really kind of set their stall out based around the idea that they're going to tackle problems to do with second homes in the communities that they represent. And I and I totally understand that i don't necessarily know if it would have been a huge a huge priority for for the labor party i suppose that's for them to to answer but the, the problem i kind of foresee with this is that the tourism economy is kind of being dragged along with it in a way that you know might be an unforeseen or an unintended consequence of some of these some of these changes so we talked about the changes to self-catering holiday let properties earlier well the, one of the issues with that is there's no actual definition of what a second home is. There's no actual definition of what a, um, a self-catering holiday let property is. And so when you try to legislate to kind of tax one of them or to enhance another, it actually becomes a really, really gray area as well. So I think one of the disappointments from people in the tourism sector that I've talked to is, well, they're happy to work with Welsh Government to just kind of come up with, with ideas here. But as I say, they felt ignored in the consultation responses. So as I said before, you know, 1% of, of people thought that these changes were a really good idea. Uh, and yet the Welsh Government pushed ahead with it anyway. So, you know, it's no surprise there's so many people in the holiday let industry thinking that they might have to give up um, as a result. So, yeah, unfortunately, we don't want you know, a thriving tourism sector in Wales to be kind of the victim of, um, you know, this labour implied cooperation agreement that is seeking to actually tackle a totally different problem. Well, I was going to say that it seems to me one of the easiest ways to deal with this would just to be building more homes. But yeah, that, that's historically been a problem in Wales anyway for a long time. Yeah, and it's always been the case. And it's actually a frustration to me. And I, actually, one of the things I'd say about the Senate generally, but my group in particular, is we've had a load of people uh, elected at the same time who were roughly the same age, right? I'm 31 and, you know, I think of Gareth Davis and Sam Kurtz and James Evans and others, we're all elected uh, at roughly the same time. And actually that housing need is a, is a big one for all of us. Like I didn't own uh, a home until I, you know, literally until a few months ago. Um, and a number of us are also in the same boat. So, you know, a lot of us are really aware that that's a real problem, which I think possibly in a generation prior wouldn't have even you know being a consideration for a lot of people so we really need to get on and build more build more houses frankly and yeah you'd actually see a lot of these other issues as you say um that would be solved with it but unfortunately that's not been the case so far let's talk about the cooperation agreement what's your assessment uh on the cooperation agreement and its impact on politics in wales it's been interesting um, more for Plaid Cymru than for anybody else, because what's frustrated, 
me, right? We had a we had a Senate election result where Labour did get 30 seats, but ultimately, you know, didn't quite get that one extra they needed for a majority. So they needed to reach out to Plaid Cymru to, to, to get that support. Now, I've got no problem with a formal coalition if that's what opposition parties want to do with the governing party. What I find odd about this cooperation agreement, and I heard Heaven David recently criticising it on this premise as well, is that they've kind of got one foot in government and one foot in opposition. So, you know, they were kind of... Um, taking issue, if you like, with a budget that they would end up having to support anyway as a result of cooperation agreement. So it's a really odd political setup at the moment. And I think there were accusations last year levelled at Adam Price, perhaps he's going too softly on Mark Drakeford in, in First Minister's questions because he had a vested interest in the, in the, you know, in the delivery of government because he was committed to that programme as well. So it's thrown up a whole load of issues, I think, in terms of the way we conduct politics in the Senate. You know, what is a governing party and what is an opposition because actually there's probably people on the plied benches now who are more powerful than the people on the back benches on the labor side um but you know one of them have all the powers and the privileges you know of opposition and the other one perhaps perhaps doesn't um so that's thrown up its own set of issues and, and the other thing i'd say as well about the cooperation agreement is that it it does seem to be kind of eroding away slightly. There was a I, I could feel the unity perhaps a bit more a year ago between Plaid Cymru and Labour than I than I do now. And it's very interesting to see Plaid go at Labour on the state of the NHS in Wales in particular. And I think Aline Ed Morgan said uh, recently, I think it was about um, uh, what, what is one of the NHS professions pay, for example, and, and, and potential strike action saying, well, you know, I'm happy to reopen the cooperation agreement, happy to come back and, you know, revisit this. Um, so it strikes me as a little bit of a missed opportunity as well from Plaid. So they've delivered things like the free school meal. We've talked uh, before about the changes to second homes rules. But actually, what are the big issues that impact the people of Wales? Well, it's health, education and economy. And really, I seeing very little in terms of what what that cooperation agreement is delivering for the people of Wales. While we're on the uh, economy and of course the, the climate as well, one of the big bits of news recently in Wales has been the roads review. What was your immediate response to that announcement? Well, we knew we sort of knew it was coming, right? Uh, and the, the big tell, I guess, would have been a little while ago when we saw the cancelling the M4 M4 relief road, uh, which would have been a blow to many after so much money being spent on the development. Um, of it in the first place. And this is just taking it one step further. I guess the point you could look at and the point you could make is, well, you know, you know, I think the argument Lee Waters is making, well, you know, we keep building more roads and more cars will fill the spaces on the roads, which I can kind of, you know, I can, I, I can understand where he's coming from with that. But there's a failure of recognition, I think, from Welsh government in terms of, well, you know, what does the future look like? What do roads look like in 20 years from now, for example? Well, we know that they're going to be probably electric cars. We're stopping selling petrol cars in 2030 in the UK. And actually, there's very little recognition that, well, we're going to move forward here and have a road network that has not been updated, has not been kept up to date. We're going to have cars that are green, but then the road and the road network in Wales is going to be so far out of date that, that it's not going to be able to meet not only the current demand, but future demand as well. So if it was tailed in with either, you know, a huge increase in the way uh, public transport here works in Wales, buses, trains and the like, or indeed a increase in the availability of electric charging points, which is in Wales um, behind the rest of the UK, for example, as it is currently, that would have been one thing, but actually in isolation. I think Ken Skates was quite scathing about it, for example, saying it was a diktat made by 
apologies in Cardiff because it's you know it sounds like a really lovely idea. We're going to stop building roads, but actually, what's the practical impact um, of pursuing that policy? Um, and is very little thought, I think, given to given to what 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 the future looks like in terms of um, transport infrastructure in Wales. Yeah, I mean, uh, Lee Waters himself admitted it was terrible timing, but you know this this announcement came the same week as we started to learn really what was going to happen to the Welsh bus industry. Um, obviously only having funding probably for the next three months. And then, you know, you've also seen decisions like Cardiff East Parkway being called in by the Welsh government. How how do you go about creating modal shift if there's nowhere else for drivers to go? It's difficult. Nothing's ever going to be convenient to the car, right? And the fundamental um, thing that probably is never going to change. So you've got two options is to either create a public transport network that complements that in a way that, for example, you know, if I traveled from my local train station here in Bridgend to Cardiff Bay for the Senedd, um, it means I've got to change currently at Queen Street and then back to Cardiff Bay and all the rest of it. That probably takes twice as long than if I'd just driven the, driven the route unless it's a particularly busy traffic day. So if we can make it sensible for people to, to, to choose to take public transport instead of actually taking away that infrastructure in the first place, that would be, that'd be, um, that'd be one way to go about it. But I think on the wider point, you just... We're not going to achieve modal shift in Wales in a way that perhaps you would see in somewhere like London because of the geography, frankly. And we've just got to accept that the geography in Wales, you know, if you think about the, the way in which our geography is, we're particularly in South Wales, we're all built around that M4 corridor and the valleys that run that run off it. That makes it incredibly difficult to build a reliable train network over and above one that travels east to west from Swansea to Newport. So you can't think in terms of, well, you know, we're just going to stop people from using cars, but it's about how can we get them to use cars less? How can we make electric cars more convenient? How can we incentivize people to, to, to take them up or, you know, even, even wider issues with the climate, how can we incentivize people to install solar panels on their home and their grant schemes we could look at and so on, you know, none of these things are in isolation and none of these things are ever as simple as we're just going to ban people from, from taking a car, taking a car from one end of Wales to the other. Cause as I say, nothing's ever going to be that convenient. The biggest bit of transport news we've had in Wales for years, obviously was the HS2 decision not to give Wales the Barnet consequentials from HS2. Obviously the Welsh Conservatives, kind of shocked quite a few people by sort of echoing those calls and saying that Wales should get its share. But what what do you make of that of that discussion that sort of gone on between Welsh and UK governments? You know, one of the reasons we called for that, you know, you say it was a shock and I, you know, a problem, you know, I can see why people would 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 kind of think that. But you know, from our perspective, we will always, as a group in the Senate, come out and call for you know call things the way we see them, and ultimately we we looked at it, and there are certainly benefits to Wales as a result of HS two. You're thinking of particularly to North Wales in terms of the um, uh, you know links to North Wales, and actually, you know, a friend of mine goes from North Wales to London quite regularly, and it's quite a difficult journey uh, at the moment that involves a few changes. So, you know, there are definitely benefits, but clearly it's not five billion pounds worth of benefit. Um, and so that's why we've called for those consequentials to come to Wales. Now, what we'd, what, what we'd want to see is to see that being used in a sensible way that improves public transport offerings for people that live here in Wales, you know, on, on, on the day-to-day basis. So what, what we said before, right, it's, it's perhaps those shorter journeys back and forth to the shops or whatever will continue to be done by car or, you know, from one place that is less populated to another or within rural areas are still probably going to exist by, by a car. But how can we make um, those larger scale, those longer journeys more convenient 
perhaps even cheaper as well, you know, because that's that's an uh, that's you know something that inhibits transport and travel here um, in Wales as well. So that's why we've called for that money. We want to improve that infrastructure. You know, iPhone was disappointed when you know probably not going to make myself popular by saying this, but electrification was cancelled um, to Swansea because I thought that was actually a really important route that connects Swansea um to, to London Paddington but also you know the, the massive sort of economic impact that that has with it as well so you know these are the sorts of things that we want to see happen in Wales but you know <laughs> you know we're not doing it to make friends in in the UK government we're doing it because ultimately that's what we see is the right thing to do and you know we want to see the benefit of HS2 being spread across the United Kingdom and not just in the areas that it directly impacts. Whilst we're on the topic of the United Kingdom, let's talk a bit about the union. Obviously, we've seen recently the big news from Scotland that Nicola Sturgeon is standing down as as Scottish FM. What impact do you think this will have on their independence debate and the sort of independence debate across the UK? Well, it's interesting. I don't think the independence debate in Scotland or indeed across the UK is based around one person. But it's clear that Nicola Sturgeon was someone, you know, who was incredibly popular and kind of took that mantra on herself and i don't think any of her successes will probably be as high profile and probably will in their initial months and years in in the job be you know working to develop a profile in wales it's a very different scenario i think because you know we talk a lot more now about independence i think than we ever did in the last couple of years in wales but if you look at polling, I don't think polling has really changed that much in terms of the public support um in wales for independence so, you know, the point I always make is, well, there's about equal number of people in Wales that want independence as want to abolish the Senate. And yet we seem to give a lot of airtime to one side of that debate and not the other. No, I don't sit on either side of that sort of um, linear debate, if you like. You know, I want to see a Senate functioning. I want to see it improving the lives of people in Wales and it can be a good thing. But, you know, I can understand why people might want to get rid of it if there's only ever one party that's run it and runs it in a particular in a particular way so i kind of think that the the debate around this has become quite as can often become quite polar in terms of well you either want an independent will or you want to scrap the senate altogether and actually where the public are where most parties are is somewhere in the middle of that you know we want to see a strong senate we want to see a senate that delivers things um which is why i was a little bit disappointed to see the um constitutional commission report by the welsh government uh or commissioned by the welsh government one of the things that came back from that report, I remember raising in the Senate, was that 55% of the respondents to that report said that they supported independence. Well, that compares to about 14%, um, according to the last poll, in Wales as a whole. And what that means is, is that you're taking a kind of skewed set of people, a set of people that aren't representative of the people of Wales as a whole, and making recommendations from that, or drawing inferences from that, that will as though it is representative they're saying well the people of wales want this and so on well we know that the sample does not come from there so it's important i think that you know there is clearly a bubble of people that want independence in wales they're very vocal you know a lot of them you'll see them in the replies on, on my twitter feed um but ultimately you know they, they don't represent wales as a whole it's actually a lot more difficult to go out there and speak to the people that are just quite happy with the status quo they exist they're out there and it's all it's a responsibility i think on people particularly that constitutional commission to engage with those people you're about to take part in a yes Cymru debate aren't you in the next couple of months and i bet you never thought that that would happen but could you tell us how that came about 
Well, it's all my fans on 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 Twitter. Um, <laughs> no, I think um, in all honesty, there's a Welsh Cymru, uh, yes, Cymru, sorry, debate happening in in Bridgend um, in April. I think it's April twentieth from the top of my head. And what that uh, basically is is about the future of the union. And there's Luke Fletcher uh, and the chair of Yes Cymru on one side, and Heaven David and I uh, from Labour on the other. And uh, essentially, just debate the the future of the Wales in a, in a United Kingdom. Well, you know that came about purely because I represent that local area. I feel it's really important to be represented. And I kind of think that as unionists, sometimes we can be a little bit guilty of kind of complacency in terms of where we are. You know, I'm glad that people of Wales don't support independence, but I think it's probably fair to say that we're quite complacent sometimes about that fact. Um, so it's important for me and people like me to get out there and keep making that argument over and over again. You know, we saw this in terms of, you know, the, uh, to give another example, like the unprecedented number of people I think that support Jeremy Corbyn because they don't remember what socialism was like because there was no Soviet Union and they don't remember the 1970s. You know, people of my generation will, don't, will, will have no memory of those things. So it's important that we need to go out and continue to make that case over and over again. And we can't be complacent about it. So that's why I'm going and I'm sort of looking forward to it in a weird right? So, uh, so you've just been uh, made the Welsh... Uh, Conservative Senate representative for the Centre for the Union. Um, often, one of the criticisms levelled against the "quote unquote" union, you know, the unionist side in in this debate is that it doesn't tend to be a, a positive argument for the union, rather a negative argument against independence. How are you sort of going to embrace this role and sort of try and take on the sort of positive arguments rather than just being negative? Yeah, I think I think that's really fair um, in terms of the way if you look at the way the Scottish referendum was run from the from the kind of stronger inside, I think that result ended up being a lot closer than probably it should have been for that exact reason. You kind of saw this, the Brexit referendum as well from the Remain side, it's that project fear kind of thing. You've got to win hearts as well as minds ultimately, haven't you? So if you look at what the UK can deliver, what the power of the UK can do, um, you know, you look at the furlough scheme, you look at when COVID had actually having that UK safety net was really, really important. And actually some smaller nations really struggled to really struggled to cope with the financial hit and the shock of, of, uh, of dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. And there's loads more examples like that. But as I said before, I don't think we're good enough sometimes of going out and making them. And actually I think quite a lot of, the argument I see, and I'm looking forward to this Yes Cymru debate to see if the same ones are made, that are, that are based around the idea of, well, I don't like that the government is doing this or I don't like that the government is doing that. Well, the solution to that is not to tear the country apart, but it's actually just to elect a different government. Now, I accept fully that, you know, I don't want to see a Labour government. I'd like to, like to see continued Conservative government um, after the next election. But ultimately, you know, I hear all the time from from Plaid Cymru in the Senate, you know, talking about the cruel Tories in Westminster and the only way out of it is independence. Well, that's not the only way out of it. There is another way out of it. And it's to elect a different it's to elect a different government um, in Westminster as well. So I think it would be interesting, I think, to see how the independence argument gets reframed if Labour does go ahead and win that next general election. I'd be very interested to see what they then do for that, because a lot of the arguments be stacked up on that idea up to now. I can I completely agree with you, Tom. And it's, I think it's a vital question for that side of the debate because so much of it seems to sort of end up being quite an anti-Tory argument rather than an anti-UK argument. So much of the time, I think. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so it would just be interesting to see how it develops more than anything because there are going to be a new set of arguments. I think one of the other things that Scottish um, 
the, the Scottish referendum debate kind of threw up was, well, you know, there wasn't necessarily a plan for what happens the following day, right? Um, so it's all well and good saying how terrible everything is in the United Kingdom, but actually sell us on what exactly an independent world is going to look like. I don't think from from the, you know, it's not my job to do the uh, do the nationalist work for them, but I don't think that sort of vision has been thrashed out well enough either. No, I mean, you know, we have these debates all the time, but people have moaned for years about Brexit being complicated, but that's probably nothing compared to uh, what it would be like to have an independent Wales. We were talking about the UK government, Conservative government, and the idea of Conservative government. We've just had the recent ITV, ITV Barn poll, and it's not probably the, the best poll uh, for the Welsh Conservatives. I'm sure you've had polls you've seen in the past you prefer, but... How do the Welsh Conservatives move on from this point instead of try and break through and form a government or at least maybe consider being the largest party in Wales? Is that something you think you can do? Oh, it's definitely something I think we can do. Um, and, you know, look, it's obviously really difficult. UK-wide context for us at the moment, you know, we're, what, 13 years now into, into being in government. We're in the middle of a, middle of a term as well. Um, traditionally, that's not the strongest point for any party uh, politically, particularly of the instability of the last year. Um, in Wales specifically, um, I think the way that the Senate system works, look, I was really pleased, you know, we had our best ever result in 2021, and that was primarily down to Andrew, uh, Andrew Artie Davis and the amount of campaigning he did across the country. But I think we need to think about as a party how we can appeal in a Welsh context to people um across wales so as if i give you an example is that you know i grew up in in rural welsh-speaking Carmarthenshire, and actually if you speak to a lot of those people they are inherently conservatives you know the things that they think and the things that they believe are conservatives now the reason that they vote plaid cymru instead is because we're just not seen as welsh enough and that inherently becomes a problem then for us in terms of our branding and our positioning i always think if those people knew the sort of things that Plaid Cymru stood for and were campaigning on, uh, which is quite often pitching themselves onto the left of the Labour Party, they'd be appalled. But the kind of lack of attention that's drawn to that from, from media, but also the lack of uh, presence from us, if you like, in those, in those areas is really important too. And it can, means we kind of miss out on communicating that message. So unless we can get our act together and get a bit of a stronger Welsh brand, particularly in a Senedd context, I think we'll always struggle. I think we'll always be in opposition, frankly. So, you know, we've, we've got to sort out a couple of things in terms of our, in terms of our branding. And the, and the first one I've, I've thought this for a long time is that, you know, it is ridiculous that we seem to have three leaders in the Welsh Conservative Party all at, all at once. You know, um, the, the system Labour has, which seems to have a balance between the MPs' interests and the, and the MS's interests, you know, seems to be a model that I would, I would uh, personally prefer, but it does make it more difficult, you know, when you've got three different leaders with competing priorities, um, to develop a specifically Welsh message. And that doesn't mean that we're any less British in doing that, but clearly, you know, particularly around the Welsh language, but in a whole, whole host of different ways as well. You know, we need to be putting on that red jersey a bit more. I mean, again. Thinking about where the Welsh Conservatives tend to be elected in Wales, you know, if you, I know you, your group has not been in favour of Senedd reform, but the, that new system, it may see more Conservatives elected around Wales in places that have never seen Conservatives before. Surely, if that's what you're trying to do, trying to get to those people who may not otherwise know what your policies are or where you stand on certain things, that they may be Conservatives themselves, surely that Senedd reform could actually be a good thing for you. 
potentially um look in my in my in my region um in south wales west we've only ever won constituency seats for parliament four times ever in history right um and two of them were um, Gower in 2015 and Bridgend in 2019. I was lucky enough to be campaign manager on both of those. And in both instances, you know, what won that election? Obviously, there are national factors that go on that election. But actually, what won those elections was having strong local candidates that were really rooted and based in the local communities and knew the issues that were going on, not only on a national level, but the issues that matter to the people across Wales. So what I hope we'd see with this new system is people who are exactly that, rooted in their community, showing the difference that electing Conservatives can make so i don't think what won't help i think is if we've kind of got a set view on well these are the people we want to get elected and we're going to throw them anywhere across wales because that undermines our credibility really as a party so you know what i hope to see is a system where we're really doing the work now if you like identifying um strong local candidates that will have that presence in that community because as you say this new system could uh, if we're lucky give us at least one ms in every part of wales um, and that could could be a game changer for us if we if we pitch it and do it properly. So that's really something I want to see develop over the coming years. So as we start to think about this, you know, this glorious next Welsh Conservative government, what would that government look like, and what would it do differently? What would this? What what in your heart is the is the first thing that government would do in Wales? Well, I think the the biggest thing I think the biggest difference I'd like to say between. Uh, a Welsh Conservative government and the current Welsh Labour government is is the government that will put the economy first in Wales in particular. So, you know, so often we hear from Welsh Labour about, oh, you know, we haven't had enough money from the UK government for this, that and the other. And that seems to be the retort when anything goes wrong in Wales. It's it's blaming the UK government and, and you know, for the lack of money that's coming. Very little thought, I think, ever given to how you end up growing that pie, how you grow the share of the wealth being generated here in Wales in the first place. Uh, and that's what we want to see. You know, we talked about roads project uh, earlier. There are obviously climate needs for that, and I understand that. But very little attention, I think, given to the economic problems that that would that would cause as well. So, you know, we'd look to, um, you know, put our economy first, to in, invest in projects that are going to have a real boost in the economy, and keep taxes as low as we possibly could. Because ultimately, as I said before, you know, what do people in Wales care about? They care about the NHS, they care about the uh, education, they care about cost of living and climate change. Well, we can't deliver any of those things unless we've got a thriving economy. The easiest thing I always think governments across the world can do is spend money. That's the easiest thing in the world is how you generate money through tax receipts from a growing economy in the first place uh, that does that. So instead of having a government that is built around a redistribution of wealth and spending money, it would be one that generates it in the first instance. Tom Gifford, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Hiraith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.